Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello, it's James here, and you're listening to the IAB UK podcast. My guest this week is Ian Forrester, founder and CEO of David, one of the industry's leading voices when it comes to creative effectiveness and a business on a mission to redefine advertising research. As you'd expect, there's lots in our conversation about emotion and people's emotional response to advertising, but we go deep on what types of emotion can drive things like behaviour change and why we're an industry obsessing over the decimal points of media measurement and optimization. There's an homage to ClickEds. We talk about creative and ad agencies and pick a little bit at this prevailing view that digital is somehow less emotional than other media channels. But I start with the blindingly obvious question, why the flamingos? So, you know, we want to stand out in an industry where a lot of people are doing the same thing. Yeah. And so, you know, we're Exxon really, myself and Barney, and a lot of the team actually... And I guess a lot of the listeners in the UK will be familiar with Unruly. And one of the great strengths of Unruly really was its branding. Yeah. And so, you know, we really wanted to pick a logo which would stand out, give us a bit of a, a bit of a, a showcase on LinkedIn. So we use a Flingo a lot. It's like our little little mascot. He's called Dave. I was going to ask if you had a name. Yeah, he's called Dave. That's a Barney thing. I'm not sure about Dave, <laughs> honest. <laughs> and it's original, I guess. I think anything yeah. where you can get an emoji in. I mean, you're exactly. amazingly standing out in a world of where there aren't lots of emojis. There's so much. I'm not even sure 20 minutes is going to be enough to cover what we want to get through today. But we should definitely talk about AI. We should talk about emotion and digital being an emotional medium or per- perception of. But give us the sort of 101 on how you work and why emotion and effectiveness are kind of, if you get it right, this match made in heaven. Because emotions are effectiveness, honestly. Like when we started the business, when we started David, one of the cool things was we didn't have any legacy data which we had to shoehorn into the business. Right? right. We had a bunch of experience from our various companies and a blank piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And we said to ourselves, how do we build the data set which is required to answer the question, why is advertising effective? So David is all about the why. Got it. We do all kinds of stuff in terms of emotional analysis and attention and use of AI and all this cool stuff. But the point of doing all that work is to arrive at the why, because that's where the insight lives. Yeah. And, you know, generating great insight, you're setting great strategy. And so when we started David, we created this effectiveness process. Well, the, the starting point was, right, what data should we collect? Right. And to understand or to answer that question, we created this effectiveness process, which was the result of a meta-analysis of mm. both academia and industry studies on effectiveness. So we've got a couple of academics on the team. We're continuously knowing academic literature mm-hmm. used to bring the latest thinking from academia into the business. And of course, we're looking at the guy, the that you guys do, and the IPA, and Aaron Bass, and Nielsen, yep. and, and, and so on. There's just a wealth of knowledge out there. And we did a, this meta-analysis, and each individual study that we looked at a small part of this process, we, we then took this helicopter view to see how it all fits mm. together. And essentially what we found is, effectiveness comes about following a four-step process, right? So first of all, you need to capture attention. Mm-hmm. Of course, attention is a major buzzword in the industry, right? Indeed it is. And, you know, and look, absolutely rightly so, because without attention, you're dead in the water, right? Yeah, yeah. People yeah. have to be paying attention to mm-hmm. your creative, otherwise, what's the point? Might as well go home. However, attention is not the be-all and end-all. Yeah. It's just the first hurdle you have to overcome. But once you've captured attention, you've got to do something with it. And that something is evoke an intense, positive emotion. Mm-hmm. Because it's the emotion 
which creates the memory. And it's the memory which drives the action which the brand wants. Because we're all human. Yeah. Right? We're all responding to stuff emotionally. We might not be cognizant of it. It's, it's often subconscious. And we might not put it in these terms when asked the question, but yeah. we're all responding to stuff emotionally. <laughs> but the thing is with most content, it's just a bit average, yeah. right? So it's just like, you feel a positive emotion. Mm. You don't hate it. I mean, there are ads that we hate, of course. Yeah. But most of the time, you're like, yeah, positive emotion, four or five out of 10. Problem with that is two seconds later, you've forgotten it. Yeah. And we live in a world where there's lots of like, it. Exactly. There's yeah. lots of five minutes. Exactly. exactly. There's this massive stuff, which is just average. And yeah. so, you know, how many ads do you remember which you were exposed to yesterday? You know, a classic question. The ads you do remember are the ones that make you feel something. Got it. And it can either be good or bad. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily positive. Most brands should probably stick to the positive. Yeah. As a rule of thumb. But both can be effective because that's what drives the memory. Mm. And that's what we need as an industry to create among consumers. So then that sticks out. So essentially, walking around, right, you don't remember everything that, that, you, yep. that happened to you in, in a day, right? You remember the highlights and the lowlights. So stuff that made you feel really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. So we're helping brands to insert themselves into the highlight reel for that day. Nice. Be remembered. And that's what then drives the action. Yeah, yeah. The question is a long, a long winded answer, but... Your question around emotions are absolutely fundamental. So yeah, exactly. Not just as well, I need, I need to point out, not just for brand building campaigns, but for lower funnel campaigns. That's a great point because we yeah. are responding. Like if I see a, something from booking.com, right? Mm. And it's advertising huts in Thailand or something, right? What's going to cause me to click through and potentially search for get, get some more information or even book? It's the quality of that content that's going to inspire. The, the emotion I, I will be feeling will be inspired. Yeah. yeah. Um, to then go through and, and learn more. But, you know, most lower funnel content is very rational. It's yeah. very deal-based yeah, yeah. and very forgettable. And so this is kind of that, this connection between lower funnel being rational is a result of most of it being rational because that's what people think it needs to be. But actually the most effective yeah. lower funnel content is a motive. Yeah. So this is why we focus on the That's fascinating. You talked a little bit about the why. How are you understanding how people are feeling about stuff that they're watching? A 30-second video, for example. How are you getting that sense? Because you could ask them, but as you say, there's a gap there between how someone thinks they feel about it and how they might actually be. Yeah, great question. So another premise of David is that we bring together several techniques. We don't just do one thing or another. Mm-hmm. But if you do eye tracking, only eye tracking. Yeah, imagine yeah. sort of clockwork orangey. Yes and no. You think, I mean, because there's a lot of interesting data you can collect in our lab. Don't mm. get me wrong. I'm, like mirror marketing, some of the, the brain data you can get is fascinating. The issue is it's not scalable. Yeah. Because yeah. we're operating around the world. Mm. We need to be collecting data in a scalable way. So there's always that trade-off between yeah. like depth of data you're collecting and, and, and scalability. So we've chosen uh, this mixed modality which we use is very specifically chosen to be scalable and to leverage a mix of human-centered data Mm -hmm. and AI to then create models which then allow us to produce that emotional data. So going into the models, right? To generate, we've got two data sets. One is what is happening within content Mm -hmm. and the other is how are people responding to it. Your question is about the how are people responding Mm -hmm. to it? How do you know that they're feeling these emotions? Hey, this attention or whatever. So to collect that data, how are people responding to it data? We're showing content to people and we're asking them to turn their webcams on while they're watching it. Mm-hmm. So that allows us to capture their facial expressions, 
also where are they looking on mm-hmm. the screen. So essentially attention and emotions in terms of them, nice. those biometrics. We're also asking a bunch of questions. So we are using, we still use surveys. Yeah. And actually our emotional granularity comes from a survey because oh, facial coding, all forms of biometrics actually, be it neuro, be it facial coding, like skin response, yeah. heart rate, all, all, all of them will tell you whether there's a, an emotional response. So you're watching a video and there's like a peak of response, yeah. positive or negative, yeah. right? And you know, the facial coding, with facial coding, you know, there are six expressions. Frankly, that has been the existence of those six expressions, which are claimed to be universal across mm. cultures. There's a lot of work within academia now, which is basically suggesting that's simply not true. Right. right? They don't translate across borders. Let's say that they do. That just provides you with six. Yeah. Our academic work on the emotion side, like the emotional granularity, we have our emotional categorization, which is called the David 39. Mm-hmm. These are 39 emotions that we test for. Loads more than six. Loads more than six. Yeah. And that has been drawn from academia. So we've basically summarized it. It's a huge body of work yeah. around <laughs> emotions. Like they don't necessarily agree on what constitutes an emotion. And there's loads of gray area and mm-hmm. they differ by territories. So there's all this body of work, which industry knows nothing about. <laughs> we've summarized it, synthesized it, and brought it down to this categorization of 39 emotions, which is usable for the practitioner. And simply to understand that level of granularity, there's no biometric signal that we can pick up. We simply have to ask them. But we ask people, having seen the content, we show the positive emotions and the negative emotions separately. And so from working at Unruly, where... We did a lot of this work, right? Yeah. We were kind of pioneers in mm. the space of emotional analysis. I've learned from bitter experience that if you just show someone a piece of content and give them an open text box to say, what did you feel? They'll type stuff in. Yeah. And most of what they say will not be an emotion. It'll yeah. just be stuff. Yeah. Because people can't articulate how they feel. Yeah. But if you provide them with this framework, these are the positive emotions you could have felt. These are the negative emotions. I'll go, oh yeah, that's the one I've got it. It, it, makes got it. it, much, it prompts them and yeah. makes it much more easy for them to describe how they felt. And so, codified, I guess, unlike the free text of what, you know, someone's version of this can be entirely different. 100%, exactly. So codified, which is really important for the AI part of what we right. which I'll come on to describe in a second. Mm. But, so you've got this combination of the facial coding, the eye tracking and survey. And, and those three things together give you a really deep understanding of how people are responding, mm. right? On the other side is what is happening within the creative. And on that side, we've benefited from big advancements in computer vision tech over the last four or five years. So mm. you've got Amazon recognition and Google vision and Parafy. All the big tech players have their own computer vision tech. Right. And there's loads of small players in the space as well doing really interesting stuff around like demographics and expressions and tone of voice and mm. music being used and all this kind of stuff. So a big part of what we've done is understand how to access these various APIs and which ones to bring together so that we can categorize what is happening within content on a frame-by-frame basis, yeah. both visually and orally. That then gives us two data sets. We've got what is happening within content mm-hmm. and how are people responding to mm-hmm. them. Two very deep data sets, yeah. I, I should add, because the depth of the data here is super, super. Mm-hmm. Our system then correlates the two, so it understands what it was about the creative, which was resulting in a certain response. Got it. Essentially an emotion, or yeah. people paying attention or not, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And when you do that, when you've created that model... Then you can send an asset to the model, put it through the model, and that asset doesn't need to be viewed by people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the training, human trained data sets over here yeah. on human data, but it doesn't need to use it to then ingest a piece of content. We can say, right, what's happening in this content? We've sent it to our various computer vision APIs. 
they tell us that certainly all this, this uh, has got all this stuff in it. And given that collection of stuff, we'll say the emotions this content is going to evoke are X, Y, and Z. Amazing. And so that then enables us to produce that emotional data mm-hmm. at scale. And when we come back to you know, your, your don't be a clickhead campaign, right? Like, yeah. The uh, whole thing around not just clicks, but media data and social data, yeah. sales data in some cases, brand lift data is, it's not bad. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's, mm. this is what, in fact, it's critical. Like that, those data sets are critical to our understanding of what impact campaigns are having. But the reason they're so widely used by the industry is that it's quite easy, precisely to, to get them. Yeah. Whereas this emotional data, you can get it, don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. you know, there have been businesses doing this kind of testing for years and years, mm. but if you want to get it, it's going to cost you three or four grand a time at least. Yeah. And, you know, and that's with the amount of volume being produced these days, yeah. digital volume especially, yeah. that's just simply not financially viable. Yeah. Right? So this is what we're bringing to the industry, like access to this data at a huge scale. And there's that sort of instant gratification, isn't there, around certainly about all the stuff that we've done around clicks or like very fast moving stuff you can get your hands on very quickly. I can put a campaign live on social within two hours. I can get a sense of some numbers. They're really easy to explain to someone who's not into digital. Yeah. And we've sort of got fixated on this gratification mm-hmm. it sort of gives us. And knowing deep down, it's probably not the, not the best way of doing it. It was interesting what you were saying about positive emotions. Mm-hmm. I wonder about, does it always need to be positive? For example, things like guilt and shame, embarrassment, disgust. I think about some of those big government things, you know, drink driving, yeah. all those kinds of things. Surely they're evoking non-positive emotions, but are in incredibly impactful. I mean, not drinking and driving would be weird if you're trying to create a very joyful, positive thing. So it doesn't have to always be positive. No, so absolutely. Charities, governments with health oh, yeah, charities, of course, yeah. can very successfully... Well, not the COVID stuff, I guess, as well. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. There's a couple of points I want to make on this. Interestingly, to stand out and actually be impactful with that kind of government message, mm. kind of health message, that I would recommend thinking about it in an entirely different way and actually evoking positive emotions because the category, if you like, of content is all negative. Got it. To stand out versus Zig when the world zags. Yeah. And this is where the David 39 comes in really beautifully as well Mm. because we have this really deep emotional categorization so we can pinpoint the emotions being evoked by a certain category. Mm. In that particular category, you've got shock and horror and disgust and all these things. But you remember Dumb Ways to Die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Metro trains, Australian video, like these little funny little characters we've mm. we watched Dumb Ways to Die honestly brilliant piece of content I remember when that came out and there's all these little characters dying in stupid ways and then the last one dies on the train tracks and you know I remember like two years later I was on the train and kids were singing like Dumb Ways to Die I'm like do you know what that's yeah, about yeah. they're like yeah it's about being careful on the train tracks I'm like that's yeah, wow. effective yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that message across so that's what I'd say about negative emotions in particular with regard to charities and government associations um, bodies. On the flip side, in terms of like, most commercial brands should probably err on the positive. Yeah. However, it's possible to use the negative to amplify the positive. Right. Great example of that. Like a girl, right? First time you watch Like a Girl, you're like, that's horrible. Yeah. Like I felt angered that I never even realized that I was doing this, mm. you know. So that really pisses people off at the start. But then they show how always are making a difference. And so the kind of the narrative arc is like, people are, are down, they're like really annoyed, but then it kind of brings you up to, yeah. this, to these feelings of inspiration and pride and warmth when they show you the positive resolution. So, but the positive resolution is the end emotion, mm-hmm. which is 
by far and away most likely to be associated with the brand. Mm. It's kind of the peak end rule, but the, the end is like that's normally where the branding appears. And so that's normally where people yeah. make those associations. Yeah. With a commercial brand, you almost certainly want that to be positive. Yeah. You know, the, the final emotion being about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess brands like Dove have done that particularly well as well. You know, the entry point isn't always perhaps where you end up. Thinking about, like, just coming to mind now as I'm thinking about it, but like brands like Brewdog, which is that sort of slightly shock and awe, is that an emotion thing or is that just, we're just going to do something completely different that you wouldn't expect from a beer brand that's actually going to piss you off a little bit because we're going to put these signs with big sweary words we're not really showing near schools and it gets talked about in that yeah, way. That yeah, feels yeah. like something slightly different. I mean, at the end of the day, we're responding to it emotionally, mm. right? It's, if it's shocking content, it angers people, it gets people talking. You know, I would question whether it's a good idea. I don't think all publicity is good publicity and that's rubbish. Maybe you only get so many lives on this stuff as well. Yeah, you can exactly. be shocking once, but to be shocking again exactly. and again and again, boring. Feels yeah, quite yeah. tough. Gym box are going through this at the moment with a sort of a faux out of home thing. You know, you want you wonder how many lives you kind of you kind of get with some of these things. I wonder how much context plays a part in all of these things as well. You know, for example, if I'm sat in a cinema and I see this brilliant 30-second ad, I'm in the dark, it's in Dolby Surround, it's sort of beautiful and brilliant. If you were to show me the same thing on my iPhone on a 3G connection that's sort of patchy and in and out, is my emotional response going to be the same or does the context play a big difference? I'm very captive and lean back in one and I'm just sort of, you know, maybe in a different state in another. Context plays a big role, mm. for sure. I mean, particularly that, that example, you know, cinema screen... Dolby surround sound versus, yes. you know, dodgy phone connection. Clearly, it's going to be more emotive in the cinema. Yeah. So, yeah, context plays a big part. And creating content for context yeah. is critical, of course. But, you know, again, a lot of people think that digital isn't necessarily emotive. It's not where you do your brand building, which is again, absolutely... Yeah, we get a lot of that. And maybe we're a bit hung up on that because of who we are. Mm. But, yeah, and maybe it's come from a point where... You could measure everything in digital, therefore you go right to the bottom and measure the stuff that, that is sales and stuff like that. But that sounds interesting. So it's not that you only have to do this bottom of the funnel, very functional, rational stuff that can do the I mean, other bit. I mean, look at influencer marketing. I look at TikTok. I mean, TikTok is such an emotive thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's what it does. It sucks you in by evoking emotions mm. in you. Like you might, if it, the algorithm finds the content which, for you, it's going to be most emotive and keep you on the platform for as yeah, long as possible. And that is a, a pure yeah. emotion. Yes, it's, you've got your, your attention to start with. It's, it's full screen and immersive. So there's nothing that's going to capture your attention. And then it's showing you the right content, which is going to emote yeah. the right emotions. When you, and when used well, TikTok for brands is an incredibly powerful yeah. platform. Of course, when not used well, you know, if, if content is shoved on there, which was never meant for the platform, yeah. or if and they try and jump on bandwagons that they, they shouldn't do or, or whatever, yeah. Then that can back, backlash, back, yeah. backfire really badly as well. So you need to know what you're doing. But when used intelligently, Instagram, TikTok, like well, all forms of digital can be super emotive. Yeah. And brand building. And also used for lower funnel, like using emotions to drive lower funnel outcomes yeah. as well, as we discussed. And I'm sort of putting rules and in inverted commas here, but this idea that, you know, the, the big three minute long Nike ad that appears in the Champions League final on telly is somehow the, the, the pinnacle of how you drive emotion, yet TikTok's able to do that in three seconds or something like that. It sort of feels like there's no one better than the other, but no. the, the, you know, it's, it's not impossible to do it. We've done um, some work around TikTok in terms of the emotions evoked on the platform, right? Because a lot of people, particularly like two or three years ago, 
and TikTok was fairly new. They were like, oh, it's all about funny dances. You just got to be stupid. It's all yeah. about humor, the yeah. emotion, right? And we looked at this particular question for a client and actually, no, it's absolute rubbish. You can, the full gamut of the day with 39 emotions are being evoked on TikTok, but it's just the creative which evokes those emotions. You know, some emotions you're able to evoke super quickly, like shock, yep. humor sometimes. Some emotions take a little bit more of a storytelling arc, things like inspiration, mm-hmm. pride. It's all possible to do yeah. within the TikTok format. Yeah. As long as you don't get fixated on, oh, this has to be a certain way because it's TikTok, it's got to be funny. Or not. It's just a video, it's, it's just a yeah. platform. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And actually, if you're intelligent about it and you evoke those unusual emotions on the platform, in interesting ways, you're going to stand out mm. and that's going to drive your effectiveness. The more I hear you talk, it's like, it feels like the best place to bring a business like you in is right at the start when you think about creating it. But is that typically where you get inserted or are you sort of at the end when we're trying to measure it? <laughs> so both, honestly. Right. Yeah, no, the, the, a great way to use this is at the start. Mm-hmm. So we're doing these com strategy projects mm-hmm. with clients where essentially we do a meta-analysis of a bunch of content. That could be competitor content versus mm-hmm. the client brand to see how they're stacking up. It could be, so we've got a, a client who wants to launch on TikTok in Singapore yeah. right now. And they're like, okay, how, where do we start? And so we're doing like a review of Singaporean brands mm-hmm. and their politicians and how they're showing up on the platform and also some of their global competitors. So that can be an avenue. Brands sometimes are needing to talk to a new audience. So we're working with a Singaporean bank whose issue is they need to communicate to high net worth millennials. They used to speak to high net worth, no problem, but their content is not resonating with this yeah. younger high net worth group. So they're like, okay, well, where do we start? Well, okay, well, we start by understanding what is resonating with these people and, and therefore what can we learn? So essentially, it's, it, mm. it, the outcomes might be different, but the, 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 the basic premise is analyze a body of work, draw out a load of the why, yeah. and then set your strategy as a result. Yeah. It just feels like it's audience planning on speed. I mean, it's like amazing. It's so much more insight than plugging a load of stuff into a TGI and getting some indexes back. Exactly. Because it's the why. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. I mean, we can, we, we are working with client data. Mm-hmm. That can be a really interesting to, to addition to what we do. So we're working with a Japanese convenience store who's got loads of sales data. They've got sales data coming up the orifice, right? They've got store level, SKU level, and so on. And, and, what they're seeing is when they launch certain ads, they can tie the ads to performance. So they're saying, these ads are driving bumps in sales. These ads are not driving bumps in sales. But why? We then test that creative, draw out the why, so these ads are working because yeah. of these reasons. And like, oh, okay, now we understand. Now we can repeat them success. Now we know to avoid doing these things, yeah, yeah. turning our consumers off. But normally, clearly, we wouldn't be privy to that sales yeah, yeah. data. But when the brand brings that kind of data, we're working with brands with big social data, mm-hmm. vaults, media data, vaults. Brands are swimming in data. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone, everyone has got too much data, right? <laughs> and, they, and they can't see the wood for the trees. Oh, that's, this is great. It's great that we've got all this data, but so what? Yeah. You know, we can see these videos have got great booster rate. These ones don't. Oh, well, why? Yeah, yeah. And that's where we come in. And so, yes, we get involved at the start, but also, also we have like, creative tests as well. So what content has been made and that creative. Yeah. And with the new automated product, which I'm, um, which I alluded to earlier, this is with the AI, with the AI, yeah. the fully automated product, mm-hmm. we're now getting involved at scale, like, and that's just a, a pure data play right now, where clients can upload a bunch of content, 
via API, mm-hmm. get that emotional data back and then plug it back into their systems. Where, where I basically do it nice. as whatever you want to with that data. Yeah, There's yeah. no reporting or you know, insight presentation, yeah. ever, but it's, they're using that data to improve their own models that they're building. A lot of media agencies are, doing, are operating in this space and also to deliver the wipe to the client, which they haven't had access to prior, but you know, they're doing so at scale versus, you know, the odd creative test they might have yeah. had that they're looking at all of their yeah. content. I spent the best part of 10 years in a media agency and think when I look back now and probably knew it at the time, we were very fixated on the media placement and how you optimize that by the 0.01% that you could possibly change. Have things moved on, do you think? Is there a bigger awareness of creative effectiveness now over media or are we still sort of obsessing over those metrics? I mean, no, the industry is still fixated on media. You just can't shift it that much. Like I said, there's definitely <laughs> points by which you can shift this stuff. I mean, yeah, but it's been optimized yes to the million and so there's very little performance that you can get out of like a media strategy yeah, yeah. more performance additional performance this is where the attention industry has come in yeah, they, you, in fairness that has you can see big swings when you're actually measuring proper attention and you know overviewability people are you, you, are, you, are, you have placements media placements where yeah. people are actually paying attention to that placement mm-hmm. big tick and that's why you see big improvements and that's been kind of a bit of a, a tidal wave that's hit the industry but again, there's only so much additional performance that yeah. a good placement can give you. Mm. And ultimately, the creative plays a huge part yeah. in effectiveness. The thing is with media, is with the technology that we have at hand, it's easy to measure mm. twice. Actually, it's easy to A-B test yeah. and to figure out like how can we up- optimize this to the yeah. degree. Until we've turned up, right? It's been hard to measure creative effectiveness, the effectiveness delivered by the creative itself. Mm at scale and so we've defaulted to these what metrics yeah but those what metrics don't tell us mm. the why they don't actually speak to the creative yeah they speak to what, the, what impact the creative is having but not the why yeah and so this is where the gap has been and it's, 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 these are not easy questions to answer yeah like why did this content evoke this emotion among this random audience of you know young girls in japan let's say yeah. it's not an easy question to answer so i yeah. i can see why the industry is fixated on media because it's a much easier question to answer. Mm. But there's only so much performance that will deliver and this yeah. is where we're coming in. And what about the people that are creating the ads? Um, the sort of creative community, I'm thinking about ad agencies, creative agencies. Mm. Are they quite engaged? Are they quite turned on by this? Because if you were new, if you're an art school grad or you're just coming out of a course into an ad agency, I mean, this sort of stuff would be gold. But I wonder how engaged they are in finding out if this stuff really works, all the craft that goes into it. You have different sides of creative agencies like that. Certain swathes of them, not interested. I guess um, newer digital ones are kind of, you know, they're digital by design. I guess there's some legacy, older, bigger ones perhaps. But individuals within the agency could well like, differ in terms of how they view this kind of analysis. Mm. A lot of creative people their hair goes up on end when you say the word AI and, and they, they think about applying AI to their creative genius, right? Yeah. And I, in a way, I can see why. Mm. Because up until now, AI has been potentially being used to replace creative people. It's like, you know, you've got a, you've got a piece of content, you can change certain things about it, which we chop it all yeah. up and then stick that into the world and see what works and basically do DCO, but yeah, yeah. AI created my monster. Of course, that's not creativity. That's just optimizing that particular ad, given yeah. a certain 
set of stuff that you've got mm-hmm. and certain levers that you can pull. And to a lot of creative people, that's what we're doing with our AI, but not at all. So the, the analysis that we do, like for example, right, when we do a category analysis, where we're looking at a brand versus its competitive set. We did some work like this for a, a major Japanese cosmetics company who were really struggling on TikTok. They had loads of new direct-to-consumer mm-hmm. competitors. And we saw in the TikTok data that the, our client brand was not at the races. They like, their engagement rate was super low, uh, follow-to-view ratio really low, you know, a mess. Mm-hmm. And we analyzed their competitors' creative and their own creative. And essentially, we found that there are certain emotional spaces that most of these players were playing in. There was also emotional white space, we call it. Yeah, nice. And we were like, okay, for you, as, as I almost said the brand name then, if you as this cosmetics brand want to differentiate versus your competitors, these are the emotions that you can play in. Yeah, very nice. And then we bring in the creative team and the brand team and say, right, these are the potential emotions, but not every emotion is right for every brand. So which had given the brand's USP in and history and values, which emotional space can it occupy? And then yeah. we, we selected the emotions in partnership with the creative team. Yeah, nice. And then, so that the emotions they came up with that they wanted to own were entrancement, calmness, and admiration. Entrancement. Entrancement, yeah. <laughs> but something's so beautiful, you can't take your eyes off it. <laughs> and so that was their decision. And now they're briefing their creatives on that basis. And so... From the creative point, of, creative team's point of view, they're like, okay, we know if, because the creative people are storytellers, right? It's what they do. And mm-hmm. why do they tell stories? To evoke emotions. That's the core of storytelling. Yeah. The point of it. Yeah. And so we're pointing those creative people in the right direction. We're like, we know if you evoke adoration, calmness, and entrancement, we can differentiate the brand. Yeah. How you do that mm. is up to you. So we are fueling those creative people. We're sowing the seed of inspiration, but we're not saying, Make the got it. the cat blue. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because you know, blue means in yeah. yeah okay, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that you're, it's effectively all the tools are being given to them. They're still going to be created, but it's just a little bit more direction. I love this idea that this white space of only just start thinking like new product development, go to market strategy. Like everyone wants a difference, especially in a category like makeup, where effectively it's sort of all the same. Mm. Think about like you know water, liquid death, who's like this brand, which is just like come on, like completely different because it invokes something different within you it's not about how patient whatever it is heals and and most of it i have a couple of quick fire ones to finish if that's all right banners buttons video all that sort of stuff but you know we there was a great promise some years ago the the year of wearable you know for wearing all these things that can do skin temperature and all Mm. these biometrics aren't we going to be in this wonderful world where we can tell exactly how people are are feeling and doing all all the time it hasn't quite happened like that has it so there are some businesses using wearables to test content, but it's the blunt edge sword, honestly. I mean, it gets you over heart rate, right? So the, the heart rate is what you're measuring with a wearable. And if you're using heart rate to test creative, it, yes, you can do it at scale, obviously. Yeah. But you just get a, an emotional response. You don't even get negative or, or positive mm. because your heart rate goes up regardless. So it was the three espressos I had before I watched the video. Could, <laughs> so be, but it's just like, yeah, okay, you get a response. Yeah, but I don't know if that's a decent response. Yeah. So it, you get part of the picture. Yeah, not enough to, to say anything meaningful. And on a similar, uh, on a similar theme, you know, mixed reality, AR, VR. The promise of that was, I guess, that this incredible attention that you would be able to hold 
you know, does that make it even more emotive? I mean, you sort of go back to the cinema experience and the lights go down, massive screen in front of you, can't look anywhere else. And we haven't quite, I guess, something's happened with VR and AR and it hasn't become this mainstream thing yet. Exactly. But is there something interesting with immersion? 100%. I mean, it's an immersive environment which can be controlled. Yeah. Which could, I mean, and that is potentially super, super emotive. I yeah. mean, you know, I've, I was reading this book by Anil Seth about, about consciousness, actually, which is about perception mm. and, and how the, the brain functions. It's like a prediction machine and they've done some experiments where They've put people into, into virtual reality environments, put their headset on, and, and they're in the lab, and they've suddenly switched the, the lab view to like a fake lab view. Mm-hmm. They then introduce certain things which are odd. The respondents, the participants, are like are totally immersed, wow. and, and it's like mm-hmm. blowing their minds. Yeah. The more immersive something is, the more potential it has yeah. to be emotive, but it's just, like you say, it's not mainstream yet. Not yeah. People have headsets. The tech isn't quite there, but I'm sure it will come. Yeah. And then we've got to get the human behavior to catch up. Last question, you touched it a minute ago. How do we stop being an industry of clickheads? We need to add the why metrics to the one. I agree with your CEO, right, John Mew, when he says, Nice is loads of sex. Well, I read one thing that he was like, look, clicks are not necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. I'm like, great, clicks aren't like inherently evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's not terrible to measure them. Yeah. The rest of the media metrics, like social metrics, like brand lift metrics, like sales data, it's just the what. And measure it all you want. And good, definitely measure it because it is telling you something. Yes. This is interesting and useful, but it's not the full picture. And until you understand why people Mm. are clicking or not, Mm. then so what? Have you understood? Like, well, how are you changing? How are you improving? So we need to add the why metrics to the what metrics. Yeah. And we need to be able to add those metrics at scale to be able to move away from being clickheads. Amazing. What a brilliant, succinct answer to finish. Ian, thank you so much for giving us some time this afternoon. Thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. Ian Forrester from David there. Nick Emery, former global CEO at Mindshare, always used to make the point that you don't go and work for a media agency just to sit in spreadsheets all day. Effectively optimising the shit out of a media plan. You get into media to do the exciting stuff. Big, big partnerships, planning, big standout campaigns that change the way people think. And the conversation with Ian, I guess, rammed home to me that the ability to understand how advertising makes people feel and why they feel it is surely why you'd want to get into media in the first place. Ian was a really fascinating person to sit across from and has this ability, as I think most founders who we talk to on the pod do, which is to take something that's relatively complicated and just make it really, really simple. By the time you're listening to this episode, IAB Digital Upfront season would have probably kicked off. So if you haven't checked out the schedule of which IAB members you can expect to hear from, you should totally do so. You can find all the information at iabuk.com forward slash upfronts, plus details of how you can sign up to attend all the various sessions as well as those specialist upfronts in podcast, gaming, retail media and connected TV. And if you didn't know already, everything in this month of upfronts is completely free to attend. Hopefully see you out and about across London in the next few weeks as something upfront shaped. But for now, thanks very much for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.